0: Hi guys, Sam Willis here. Now, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about a new competition we're running to win a signed copy of one of our series books. We've got books on World War II, the Romans, the Tudors, and the Vikings. We know there are many, many thousands of you out there listening to our podcasts, and we want you to tell us on social media what you're doing and where you are whilst listening. We want to see all the beautiful places or ordinary jobs or wacky things you're doing whilst listening. Either send a photo or just describe where you are and what you're doing and we'll draw a random winner. But remember, to qualify for the competition, you have to tag us in your post and add our webpage, historiesoftheunexpected.com. Whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, But if you do let your followers know that you're listening to us and enjoying it, we'll enter you into our competition for a signed book. Thanks everyone and good luck. Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected. This is the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like magic, slugs and marbles. Marbles!
2: That is a marvellous subject for an unexpected history for homeschooling. We will, however, be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of dressing up is all about the Rebecca Riots and Turnpike Roads, or that the history of bullies is all about the rise of the Nazis. Now, you should know that if you've been listening to our series, because those are two of the recent subjects that we have done.
0: Yeah, and it was great fun doing both of them. Um, Everyone, the man sitting opposite me... Well, he's not, actually, because we're in lockdown. He's the other end of town. He will help pilot us through this wonderful historical world. He is one of the country's leading professors of history. It's Professor Extraordinaire James Daybell. Hi, James. Hello,
2: Sam. And the man not sitting opposite me, but sitting in his shed across town, is the wonderful, famous historical adventurer who's not doing much historical adventuring at the moment during lockdown, but he is still... Dr Sam Willis. Hello,
0: Sam. Hello. I I was on top of the Great Wall of China several months ago and I'm I'm missing it now. I'm missing (laughs) my adventures in Asia.
2: I bet you are. But they're coming out on, on a TV station near you very soon, aren't they?
0: Oh, they are, actually. Yes, they are. They're going to be on um, on National Geographic. I didn't do that as a deliberate plug, but uh, no. Relics of China will be out on National Geographic quite Excellent. soon. Excellent. Now, guys, Excellent. this is another episode in our special homeschooling series, and in each episode, what we do is we take a subject that I bet you don't think has a history, and then we prove that it does. And today is one that's familiar to all of us. It's also fundamentally important to to history, to how we understand history, to what happened in history. We are doing the history of sharing, which, of course, is all about Karl Marx and the Communist Manifesto. But before we go into that aspect of sharing, we're going to do a bit of brainstorming and think about how else we might think about sharing in history. So, James, how do you think we should go about doing this?
2: Well, I think... I'm inspired by homeschooling and everyone is at home and my daughters are being, who are aged eight and ten, are being brilliant at sharing with each other. So this is a way of getting into early childhood, the history of early childhood and teaching people to share. If we go upper level, we can think about it in terms of cooperation at an international level. So it's diplomatic nations coming together to share resources. Think about the the League of Nations or the United Nations or even the emergence of the EU, where people band together and share things. Think about it in terms of post the Great Depression, which began in 1929 and it lasted till 1933, and in the US led to the New Deal and President Roosevelt's pump priming of the economy, where he basically threw public money to get everything started again. And that can be seen in terms of sharing. Or you can think about it in terms of community and cooperation at a very local level. You can think about working class women in Victorian England, and there's lots of evidence for them banding together, sharing things to make ends meet, lending each other money from week to week so that people can afford and aren't left out, um, helping out with childcare And that kind of thing. And finally, it's a model for social relations in the 16th and 17th century. It's basically how early modern marriage worked. It was a balance of things, husbands and wives sharing. And to illustrate that, I have a quote here from John Dodd and Robert Cleaver's conduct book. This was basically a how-to-be-married manual. And it's entitled, A Godly Form of Household Government for the ordering of private families according to the direction of God's will. And listen to this. The duty of the husband is to get goods, and of the wife to gather them together and save them. The duty of the husband is to travel abroad to seek living, and the wife's duty is to keep the house. The duty of the husband is to get money and provision, and of the wife's not vainly to spend it. The duty of the husband is to deal with many men and of the wife's to talk to few. The duty of the husband is to be intermeddling and of the wife to be solitary and withdrawn. And so it goes on. But the idea is that they each have their responsibility within the marriage. And that way, as 17th century Puritan writers thought, by sharing... The marriage and the responsibilities that was the way to have a happy marriage and a balanced family, so it's all about sharing sam
0: mm, marriage as well. I thought about it in terms of pirates, obviously <laughs> this is um, this is some of the articles so pirates in the eighteenth century lived by certain rules and they were obsessed by fairness and sharing. This is from Bartholomew Roberts's articles on his ship, the Royal Fortune, in seventeen twenty Every man has a vote in affairs of moment. His equal title to the fresh provisions or strong liquors at any time seized and use of them at pleasure unless a scarcity. Make it necessary for the good of all to vote a retrenchment. And then another one here, 1723. This is a guy called John Phillips and he had four companions. They seized a schooner on the high seas owned by a guy in Boston. And what they did is they renamed the sh- renamed the ship the Revenge And they swore to some pirate articles. And it says here, the first one is that every man shall obey civil command and captain shall have one full share and a half in all prizes. The master carpenter, boatswain, and gunner, shall have one share and a quarter in all prizes. So it makes you think about how people operated on ships in the 18th century and these are examples from pirates but there are also examples from the Royal Navy itself and what they did was they would share prize money so if in a battle they managed to capture an enemy ship then the prize money was shared out fairly amongst all the crew though the captain and the officers would get a little bit more. So that's one way of looking at sharing. I was also thinking about it in terms of the Normans, James, because we've done quite a lot about the impact of the Norman conquest in 1066. And one of the key things the Normans did was they introduced something called primogeniture, which means that the oldest son inherits all of the land. And that was very, very different to how it happened in Anglo-Saxon times. So if you were a landowner and you died in Anglo-Saxon times, the land would be shared between your children. But the Normans changed that and made sure it all went to the eldest son, which also meant that most of the land would stay in the hands of fewer people. And that is a cracking link for us to move on to, to talk about Karl Marx and the Communist Manifesto and how sharing was so important um, to this period in history. First up is we, we need to think just about what Marxism is. Well, it's a theory developed by Karl Marx in the 19th century. And what it does was analyse power and conflict in society. It explained why there was an uneven distribution of wealth in society. It was an idea that went on to profoundly influence communism and also to change the world. And as historians, what we are trying to do now is look back on that period and understand exactly how it made those changes. And a key idea behind Marx's beliefs was a slogan that was popularised in a letter which he wrote to the Social Democratic Workers' Party of Germany, which is a socialist party in Germany. He wrote it in 1875. And he wrote this at the end. From each according to his ability to each according to his needs. So the principle refers to free access to and distribution of goods, capital and services. Listen to it again. From each according to his ability to each according to his needs. What he's saying is that if you have a skill or ability, then you provide that skill in society. And if you have a need, then that need is provided for. In the Marxist view of the world, this arrangement was possible because he believed there would be a huge abundance of goods and services that would develop in a system under his model that there would be enough to satisfy everyone's needs. Now, I'm just going to read the full quote in this letter to give it to you in context. In a higher phase of communist society, after the enslaving subordination of the individual to the division of labour, and therewith also the antithesis between mental and physical labour has vanished, after labour has become not only a means of life but it life's prime want, after the productive forces have also increased with the all-round development of the individual and all the springs of cooperative wealth flow more abundantly, only then, can the narrow horizon of bourgeois right be crossed in its entirety and society inscribe on its banners from each according to his ability to each according to his needs? Now, just before we move on and James explains a bit more in depth here, I want to just explain a little bit about Karl Marx's theory of history, because this is fundamental to it. First of all, he believed that Um, there was a stage called primitive communism. So in the Stone Age, all people were equal and they shared work according to their talents. This then changed in the Middle Ages with feudalism. We've done a podcast on feudalism. We called it the history of presence. Now, at this period, what happens is the majority of people were peasants, but they were exploited for their labour by their lords. The next stage is capitalism. And this is all to do with the growth of trade and industry, the Industrial Revolution. And it means that there's a rich class of business owners, capitalists is what Marx called them. And he believed that they paid their workers only a small fraction of the money made from the labour. And they made a huge amount of money. Now, after this, he believed of communism. He meant that the exploitation of the workers under capitalism would lead them to rise up against the capitalists in a revolution. And after this revolution, they become a state of equality in which there would be no classes and all property would be owned by the whole of society. So there you are. That was Marx's Marx's views on it. James is now going to tell us about his Communist Manifesto.
2: I am. And I have for a long time, I have been very interested in Karl Marx. And it dates back to when I first visited the old British Library, when the British Library was in the British Museum. And I went in there. It's a wonderful rotunda building. So it's a huge dome. And I sat down at a desk and was working away and calling up books And then as I left, I realised that there was a little nameplate on it. And I had been working that very day in the desk that Karl Marx wrote many of his famous works. One of which I'm going to tell you about now, which is the Communist Manifesto, also originally known as the Manifesto of the Communist Party. And this is a political document first written in 1848 by the German philosopher Karl Marx and his friend and collaborator Friedrich Engels. The two of them worked together for a long time and shared many of their ideas. Now, it was first commissioned by the Communist League and originally published in London, just as the revolutions of 1848 began to erupt. And these were revolutions that took place in many of the capitals throughout Europe, but importantly, not in London, The British, for one reason or another, had always done just enough to dampen the flames of social unrest that prevented a revolution from taking place there. The ideas after 1848 were developed after the 1871 revolution in Paris and were translated into a range of different languages, German, Russian, English, Polish and Italian. And the manifesto was later recognized as one of the world's most influential and important political documents. And it stands as one of the founding works for the development of communism, in other words, a, a system of social organisation in which all property is owned by the community and as Sam just said in the quotation each person contributes and receives according to their ability and needs and also it's led to it's been part and parcel of the rise of socialism and this again is a political organisation or social organisation that advocates the means of production distribution and exchange should be should be owned or regulated by the community as a whole or by the state Um, and overall the manifesto presents an analytical approach to what Marx and Engels described as class struggle between different social classes historical and then present and the class conflicts, they argue, were contained within capitalism and the capitalist modes of production. Now, capitalism is basically a social system, political and economic system in which a country's trade and industry are controlled by private firms for profit rather than, as in communism and socialist systems, than by the state. And what, the, what is at the centre of this is that there is conflict inherent in the way in which things are organised. And I'm going to unpack that for you. And the Communist Manifesto is comprised of four different sections. And in it, Marx and Engels' theories are summarised concerning what they see as the nature of society and politics. And their argument is that the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class conflicts and at the end they argue for a forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. Now I'm going to go through this in detail. Some of the ideas are quite complex but I will put them in as simple form as possible and I want to start with the introduction to the manifesto and it's here that we start with Marx and Engels pointing out that European powers have identified communism as a a threat. But also, it talks about the power of communism to change the way in which things worked. And according to Marx and Engels, the communist movement required a manifesto, which is what they were giving it. It starts, a spectre is haunting Europe, the spectre of communism. All the powers of old Europe have entered into a holy alliance to exorcise this spectre. Pope and Tsar, Metternich and Guizot, so we're talking about political leaders here, French radicals and German police spies. To end this, communists of various nationalities have assembled in London and sketched the following manifesto to be published in English, French, German, Italian, Flemish and Danish languages. It then moves on in part one to talk about the bourgeois and proletarians. And it starts with the quotation that all history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. And what I want to do here is pick up on some of the stuff that Sam was talking about earlier on, to give you the nuts and bolts of Marx's view of how society worked and evolved across history. Now, this view of history is known as historical materialism. In other words... It's a sort of materialist conception of history and this may sound complex but basically at the heart of it lies the very simple idea that what makes things change in history is the struggle to provide for physiological and material needs and at its most basic we're talking here about the need for food and shelter and if you think about very primitive societies and how that then ends up in more complex industrial societies it's still the same thing that motivates individuals. It is that need to basically provide for themselves and Marx argues that the fulfillment of these needs is never completed. Uh, He writes the satisfaction of the first need leads to new leads And he identifies the ways in which human needs are met as the most important influence on human history. So this effectively is what propels things to change and go forward. The next thing that you need to understand is that he argues that it's the economic structure of society that forms the base upon which all other aspects of society rested. So the way in which the economy is organised is central. And the way in which he thinks about that is that what you have is different elements. Now, first, the most important of these are the forces of production. These are tools, technologies, raw materials. These forces of production are then combined with human labour power and are transformed into goods to meet human needs. So what we have then is this interaction between raw materials and human labour that creates relations of production between people and these relations he argues rest on cooperation or subordination. So there at a very sort of basic level we're talking about the fundamental economic structure of society. We then move on to something called the superstructure and there's a very fundamental distinction between the basic economic structure Of a society that are determined by the conditions under which wealth is produced in that society and the superstructure. And the superstructure is basically laws, institutions, government, the press, literature. You could fit education and schools in there. And for Marx, the rest of society, the superstructure, is tied to the economic base. So the superstructure of political institutions and legal systems was derived from the forces and relations of production. Okay, And what he argues then, these are the sort of basic building blocks to understand how his theory of history works. Because as Sam was saying, what he argues is that what we see is history unfolding through a series of stages or distinct epochs So we move from the Asiatic to the Antique to ancient society of Greece and Rome to feudal society to capitalist or modern bourgeois society. And what he argues is that each of these stages is determined by the prevailing conditions under which wealth is produced. So if we think about our feudal period, there you have everything based on ownership of land. In capitalist or bourgeois society, it's through the ownership and control of capital. So it might be the factories and the raw materials which then allowed the factory-owning class or capitalists or bourgeoisie to dominate the workers or working class. Now, how does this then lead to change? He argues that the motor for change is class struggle. So classes are determined by their relationship of particular groups to specific conditions under which wealth is produced. So if we go back to our capitalist or bourgeois society, the capitalists own the means of production and oppress the factory workers themselves. Each age, he argues, contains a dominant class and one that would overthrow it. Each mode of production contained within it contradictions that would cause its downfall. So Marx believed that in feudal time the bourgeoisie had struggled against the aristocratic landowners and now the proletariat or the working class would do the same to overthrow them. And so we return to the quotation at the very outset of this section which is that the history of all existing human society is the history of class struggles and this is what Marx and Engels unpack in the communist manifesto and they argue in part two for a communist party that there needs to be a communist party and they argue that this works in the interests of all workers who they define as the proletariat as a whole rather than one particular group and they argue about the way in which capitalism works sets up a conflict between the proletariat and the work or the workers and the bourgeoisie and that this is something that transcends national borders so it's about international socialism and at the root of their ideas is that the Communist Party would galvanise the proletariat into a coherent, cohesive class. In other words, a class that would recognise themselves as working class with clear and unified class interests that were different from and antagonistic to the bourgeoisie and that then they would seek to overthrow the bourgeoisie and redistribute political power. And fundamental to this were ten goals of the Communist Party. And these are, one, the abolition of property in land and application of all rents of land to public purposes. Two, a heavy progressive or graduated income tax. Three, abolition of all rights of inheritance. Four, confiscation of the property of all emigrants and rebels. Five, Centralization of credit in the hands of the state by means of a national bank with state capital and an exclusive monopoly. Six centralization of the means of communication and transport in the hands of the state. Seven extension of factories and instruments of production owned by the state, the bringing into cultivation of waste lands and the improvement of the soil generally in accordance with a common plan. Eight. Equal liability of all to work. Establishment of industrial armies, especially for agriculture. Nine, combination of agriculture with manufacturing industries. Gradual abolition of all the distinction between town and country for a more equable distribution of the populace over the country. And ten, and this is important, free education for all in public school abolition of child's factory labour in its present form, combination of education with industrial production. So you have a very clear outline of what the Communist Party would stand for. Part three, I'm going to skip over because it is a fairly detailed critique against different models of the bourgeoisie, but the final section is important because this is entitled Position of the Communists in Relation to the various existing opposition parties. And what they do here, they end by a, with a call for the proletariat or working class to come together. And I quote, "...the communists disdain to conceal their views and aims. They openly declare that their ends can be attained only by the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions." Let the ruling classes tremble at a communistic revolution. The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Working men of all countries unite.
0: Now, it's worth thinking about the impact of Marxism and and its views. And that's one of the key things that as historians we need to think about Something important to realize is that in some areas in his writings in his manifesto he was clear and in other areas he was vague and inconsistent and what that means is there's become it became very influential in a variety of different takes on essentially the same idea. The first impact of Marxism was felt really in continental Europe by the late 19th century and you have major socialist parties setting themselves up who are committed to Marxism. Um, Parties like the Social Democratic Party of Germany or the French Socialist Party, those are two of the most important ones. But then a very clear division appears and it's a division between those socialists who believe, um, as Marx believed, that violent revolution was inevitable and those who argued that socialism could be achieved by Evolution and there was a certain democratic process involved as well. But both groups cited Marx as their authority. An example of one of the groups who believed revolution was inevitable were uh, the Russians, the the communists who um, led Russia to a revolution in 1917, which lead which saw uh, Vladimir Lenin take control. So essentially, you have Marxism being split. And those who are more democratic in their views slightly move away from Marxism um, while the others are intent on revolution. And it's chiefly under the communists, those who believed in revolution, that Marxism really spreads around the world. But the pure classless lines that Marx envisaged never actually really appeared. Um, The most obvious examples here are that the Soviet, USSR, the Chinese and various other communist states were most only partly structured along the lines of the classless lines that Marx had in mind and very powerful leaders like Lenin or Stalin in Russia or Mao Zedong in China really stretched his ideas um, to make sure that their own ideas fit and that they could defend their own behaviour according to Marx's ideas. At the same time, capitalism doesn't quite work out as Marx believed that it would. There was an evolution of varied forms of welfare capitalism. So capitalists looking after the people that were working uh, for those capitalist businesses, improved conditions of workers in industrial societies. And at the same time, Several communist states, which set up, then failed, or they survived and they proved to be dysfunctional. And that survival and the evident dysfunction of those big communist states has um, quite clearly discredited many Marxist ideas. The Third World is really important here as well, where there is an anti-imperialist struggle, and um, very clear in places like Africa. So you've got nations such as Ethiopia, Benin, Angola, Kenya, Senegal, where. Uh, Marxism really did find find a niche. And it did that because of this materialist analysis of the world combined with a militant sense of justice. So that's really how it came to be so popular and also how it varied around the world. Anyway, time for a bit of a quiz. First up, what was Marx's famous slogan about sharing?
2: Number two, when was the Communist Manifesto first published?
0: Number three, can you name the stages of history that Marx believed in? Number four,
2: who sponsored the publication of the Communist Manifesto? Number five, can you name three powerful communist leaders? And last but not least, what were the 10 goals of the Communist
0: Party? Uh, There we go. And have we got a... Task, James. We
2: do, we do. And this week, it's a very simple task. And the task is go and read the Communist Manifesto. It is so important when understanding Marx to actually go to his ideas. And it is available for you online, on the intraweb, very, very easily. If you just type into a search engine, Marx's Communist Manifesto PDF you will pull up all sorts of different editions of it. Um, Marxist Org, I think, has a copy of it uh, that is very, very readable. And just work your way through it, spend an hour or so going through it, and its it will be time very well spent. If you wanted to do something um, more um, intelligent than that, uh, you could look at um, Marx's, you could make notes on Marx's criticism of capitalism, and then you could also counter that and you could do something on criticisms of Marxism.
0: Oh, there's a challenge for you guys. Do please check out historiesoftheunexpected.com for all of the other stuff that we're doing. And please find us on social media. We are on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Instagram. We'd love to hear from every one of you. And we've got more coming your way soon. So stay tuned, guys. Bye bye. Bye, guys.